0: Hey everyone, and welcome to Vertical Playpen, the podcast all about adventure and experiential education. I'm your host, Phil, and in this episode, I was joined by Vishwas Pachuri, who is the director of the Experiential Leadership Institute based in Pune, India. Now, it's important to note in this episode, both myself and Vishwas make reference to his Ewald and Hahn address at the 2020 International AEE Conference. So I highly, highly recommend after listening to this that you find that if you haven't seen it. You can find it on YouTube on the Association for Experiential Education's page. I hope you get as much value out of this episode as I did. I found it a very, very inspiring and thought-provoking conversation. This is one where you might need a pen and paper ready. I hope you enjoy and thanks for listening. I wanted just to say, that just to people listening, and I'm going to read this directly from the Experiential Leadership Institute website, just a quick bio on yourself, Vishwas. But it says, with 12 years corporate experience and 31 years in the field of education, children and adults, Vishwas brings to his facilitation a variety of experience from sales and marketing, teaching, training, peace building in communities, outdoors and adventure. Now, the reason I want to read that is that anyone could find that information. Because that's Googlable. All right. So those things are almost like the what of who who you are. But what I would really the first question I have is more to do with the why, the ungooglable information about you, Vishwas, is why do you do the work that you do? Not the what of what you do, but the why of what you do.
1: So I'm gonna just take away the cliches from it. Very clearly, I like what I do. Very clearly. I do it because I want to do it. It would be unfair to say that I don't care about what other people think. So let me put it a little differently. I think uh, in the spirit of what I do, if I like what I do, I will bring an energy and a rigor to it that that will invite people into that space. And it has always worked. The days that I was off and I started something, Uh, In my early practice years, if I was, you know, had an argument with somebody or uh, I was upset about something and I walked into that space, I very clearly saw that it affected everybody else as well. Uh, I quickly learned to bring myself into the spirit of why it is that I do what I do very quickly. So there have been times when uh, I walked into a corporate training program and they've committed their time and we've traveled miles to get to this space. And just because I'm not, something happened to me that morning and I wasn't okay with it and I was upset. And uh, I just walked up and I said, there's no way I was going to start it in that mood. And I just uh, gathered the group and I said, look, you know what, I'm not feeling up to it right now. And uh, we're going to start the program. My colleagues are going to help us begin what it is that we're here for. I'm just going to take a couple of hours and get back. And I took those two hours. I knew I had a responsibility. I knew I needed to commit myself to it completely and bring myself back. And I did that. And it went very well. I think it was hugely intentional. I didn't realize it then. I learned the language of what I do much later, right? So you do stuff that, you, that feels appropriate at a particular time and then you find the language of it later. So uh, it might sound like I'm coming from jargon, but I discovered that what drove me that day was a great intentionality. I just thoroughly enjoy and immerse myself in what I do and I'm, I make a very, very glib expectation that if I'm there completely, then everybody else will be there too. And it has never failed me, never. I'm just waiting for that day when it doesn't work. And I don't know if I'll find it. And Which is why that whole conversation in that address, in the Kirtan address, was about, let's look at what we are doing for ourselves first. Mm -hmm. That's critical because we're bringing ourselves into that space and we affect it in a huge way and people sense it. Mm -hmm. We are animals, right? So the word I would
0: use is they smell it when people clearly do not buy into the thing that they're trying to sell, where they're facilitating it and their energy and everything that they're putting off their pheromone of, of what they're doing is completely counter to what they're trying to portray. And it just doesn't work. And on the flip, you see those people who can walk into a room, energize a room just by their presence, because not because of the words they're saying, but because of the fact that they love, that's it. What they do. And I think that we, we are both fortunate, and anyone listening who's doing this work is extremely fortunate that we have a work that is in itself playful, in itself fun and engaging. And we are very fortunate to say that we get to be a part of it on a regular basis. Well, this weekend, I walked into a group and uh, I laughed for six hours. <laughs> and then I left, <laughs> right. and I think I taught them something, or I think no, no, it was no, something.
1: no, no. You didn't teach them anything. Yeah. You just you were just who you were. They learned whatever they had to. I'm guessing they picked that up
0: too. Early on, I would go to conferences, and I would come home, and my wife would say, "Tell me what you learned." And I said, "I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> I just remember it was fun, and there was an experience that was uh, that I could not explain." So you did, yeah. You
1: know that you did. Mm. You said it was fun. And if, if somebody said, okay, I can see that you're still in that fun zone right now. But after a couple of hours, when you can articulate it, I'd love to know what you got from it. Because it wasn't mm. just fun. And I think, I think that's the differentiator that we tend to look at what we call feedback or that form or whatever at the end of something that you do as the truth. But the truth is going to take 10 years to emerge for that person as it did for you, I'm, I'm guessing, mm-hmm. after that experience. And uh, I think we forget that
0: dearly. I think maybe it's a generational thing also, but we're on that constant desire for immediate feedback, like the like button, the flicking, yeah, all of the social media stuff. It's just <clears throat> the immediacy of it. You forget that you know, the person that originally taught me some of this stuff or invited me into this space probably has no awareness of the impact that they had on me. <laughs> so it's- Maybe a good thing too. Because I know that over the years, I've
1: met so many people. And I've always, even when I teach, I tell them that the course may be over, but I'm still available. And uh, people reach back and they tell me wonderful stories of uh, what some obscure little thing I said changed their life. I'm saying, God, I, I don't ever want to plan for it.
0: How, and, and and how could you ever live up to the expectation of that <laughs> you've got to you've got to keep planning for those life-changing moments that you've got to have you've got to have them written in I write them into my gender every other activity that says life-changing <laughs> uh, so let's let's Take a few steps back in your, your career and in, in even how you got into this industry. Can you identify a moment that's for you was like, this is, this is it for me. This is where I need to be. This is what I need to devote my time to.
1: No, I've tried finding you know, that moment. Uh, but they've been, you know, it's, it's, like, it's like you attend something and then the, you find validation and that validation may come five years later you say, wow, that was brilliant. So I think what happened with me was, I, I, I told the story during my address that uh, my first, uh, but I, I wouldn't say that, I don't know if there was a moment when I said, this is what, what I want to dedicate my life to. I have never said that about my about what I do, because I don't see it as work. And how can I, it, it can't be work. It's something you do because you want to do it. And uh, that's not work. You do work because you have to. And uh, I've never been in doubt about uh, this question of uh, wanting to be in or out has never occurred to me. The only thing that has ever occurred to me is what else can I do? And that's at, at a personal level. But if there was a moment that opened my eyes, it was actually two. It was a story I told uh, in the address about uh, uh, that door being a hole in a wall that separates two spaces. And I was one person outside and another person inside. And why am I finding that idea so crazy? Because everybody else seems to do it. And why am I finding such a big struggle? So that separation from being who I thought I was and who I had to be I thought I had to be kind of merging over a period of time and becoming one. So that, and I, and mind you, I've been asked to leave places because of that. <laughs> and those have been brilliantly educational moments because you think you're wanted and somebody comes along and says, Hey, you know what? You're not wanted to leave. I invite people to get sacked at least once in their lives. But uh, if there was a moment, it was this 11th grader's, teenagers, wild, not wanting to study, came from rich families, took them out for a week and, when they, and uh, took them up into the Himalayas for a week and we came back and they had changed. And, and people noticed it. And they asked me, what did you do to them? I said, I took them for a trick. They said, no, 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 we're not talking about that. We're talking about why are they smiling so much? Why are they talking so much? Why are they being so pleasant? Why are they accepting everything uh, we asked them to do? What's the story there? So I have no idea. But the realization of what that experience did for them came to me many years later when I had decided to make play a part of my life. So if that's a defining moment, then I don't. it wasn't a moment. It was, it was a moment that lasted three years.
0: You know, I ended up working at High Five after seven years of doing sort of some of this stuff and then also not at the same time and then just slowly got rid of the stuff that wasn't bringing me as much joy. I was working outdoor education and uh, there was, you know, forest ecology and the scientific study of, of the outdoor world and then ornithology, the study of birds. And You know, I would get rid of some of that stuff slowly from what I was doing and uh, almost like chiseling a, a marble piece of marble and finding the statue underneath or something. And then finding the thing that actually I got most joy out of, which was just having meaningful conversations with participants and having them have these aha moments. And I just kept working to figure out if I could do that as a thing.
1: Yeah. Can I, can I share with you an incident that I mm. think affected me very deeply? The funny thing is it has to do with project Adventure. I scraped to save up to in 99 to uh, come to the US. I was attending, I was going to attend an advanced course in facilitation at Project Adventure. They very kindly gave me a scholarship. That's not the story. The story is this there was a motley group of about eight of us. We were all more than 40, seasoned, experienced, adventurers, educationists, call us what you want. And when we met our instructor, there was this natural feeling, this kid's going to teach us something. Mm -hmm. I still remember his name. I haven't been able to locate him. His name was Adam. I don't know his second name. But that guy, over over that period of six days, he had us on our toes. Because the whole game was, how, do, how are we going to outguess what this guy throws at us? And we couldn't, and we couldn't for six days. I said, wow, this is something I have to be able to do. When I think back upon it, I say, was it anything he did? So this is my um, older self trying to give it meaning. And I think what he did was, is critical to the work we do, is that he stayed with us. He presented the opportunities. He did what he was supposed to. And then he stepped back and watched the fun. He didn't come with an agenda of which questions to ask and where to take it or how to take it. He just hung out there, smiled right through the day, laughed with us made us look like monkeys but he was he was young all of 26 I remember that and the energy he brought was so non-threatening and have always over the years aspired to to become that in my memory of it now if you ask the other participants was it so I have no idea and it doesn't matter it's what I got from it. And for me, in terms of my own practice, I think that was certainly one of those defining moments.
0: You know, when I started at High Five, I was 26. So I would have been that age when I started. And I do remember the extreme anxiety I'd feel leading advanced programming and, and seeing people come through the door and they've been doing this longer than I've been alive. So how is this going to go? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that, yeah, that, the, the stepping back and letting the group—that is an advanced skill set that is often not seen. And when I'm teaching and I'm seeing that in facilitators, they've got the agenda, they've got, they've written down the reflective questions they're going to ask, which is before they've even done the art, the the activities. And I'm like, really, you you know what questions you're going to ask about the activity before you've even run it?
1: Right, right, that's right, right, that's right,
0: you right. have some sort of a psychic ability that's way beyond myself. But I think this leads into there was a. You, you brought up in, in, your, in your dress, and I, I wrote down this line, you said the failure in the practice of experiential education, and you led into talking about reflection and used an analogy of of the bus. Is this something that you've recently come to, this, this notion, or is it something you've held on to for a long time, and this is, this is your philosophy on experiential education, that it has to be in the hands of the participants?
1: I think I have uh, sensed it. For many years, that came from my awareness that when I went into something, I had an agenda. And each time I tried to get to that agenda, uh, there was always something that uh, derailed it. So what's the story there? It seemed like as a facilitator, I was at odds with where the group was. And uh, it doesn't make sense because then it becomes uh, the, the traditional education pattern, which is I know you don't, and, I'm, and it's my job to take you there. Once I was able to recognize some of the truth behind that, and one of those pieces was that as experiential educators, we have great power. When groups come to us, we get them to play with stuff that they've never played with toys ropes, strings. And, you know, we make it exciting, yes. But uh, I think we do grave injustice to the fact that they're never going to be able to solve a damn thing. When I was able to recognize that and move away from it and say that, hey, maybe this is not about them being able to solve it us. then what is this about? Because it's so easy to measure them, right? And to judge them on the basis of Uh, what they do. And it's always a failure. Now I needed to, I needed a new lens and that new lens was, first of all, who is this about? If it's about me, I knew inside that I was failing miserably because I couldn't take them to where I wanted to, because let me just put it, uh, they were not ready. Mm -hmm. And not because they knew less or more, but we just knew different things. Okay, great. So let's put that aside. If I put my agenda aside, then what do we have? Then the only thing we have is them. And if it's about them, how do I lend richness to what they experience rather than what I want them to experience? And I think that changed a lot for me. The focus was Then always about them. And when that happened, it became easier for me to, uh, it's not the nicest way of putting it, but let go of the power. But the truth is, we have immense power as educators, and we can use it or not use it. And ever since, it's changed the way I see things. And regardless of whether it's a two hour gig I'm doing, or it's a five day thing, I will always invest at least a third of the time in that exploration and discovery of who are you? Where are you from? Why are you here? What's the most important thing? And gather that in as individuals and as groups before I try and do anything that might be of value.
0: Yeah, leads into the philosophy of connection before content.
1: I have come to this place where I believe facilitation cannot be taught. So here's what I do. I teach a a year-long course, a weekend, a month. So it's 16 hours a month, and then they go off and do stuff. And then they come back uh, for nine. So so it's a nine-month program of which two sessions, seven sessions are in classroom and two sessions are outdoor. The first outdoor session, I run. The second outdoor, which is like their graduation ceremony, they run. For the past few years, I've been doing something really cruel. From day one, I invite them to run an activity and facilitate it. Day one, hour three, I will open it up and say, hey, any of you know activities? Okay, are you willing to do this? And then they do it. And you know how it's going to go. New peer group, unknown, nervous, doubting themselves. They don't know me as an entity. They're still discovering me. And at that point, I realized that I needed to be really gentle. The issue was not showing them what they or how they did. It was to gather all the things that that were happening to them. And what I would do is bring their attention to just two things. One is thinking in action, and the other is thinking on action. So they're running, so they set up the activity, they give the brief, the group's playing around, and then I watch them. And after about five minutes, I'll walk up to them very quietly and ask them, what are you thinking about? And they're nervous. They don't know what they're going to ask. They can't see what's going on with the group. They're comparing it to what they think is the right answer. And and it's a mess. And I just leave it there. So I just ask them if they share it, great. If they don't, that's fine. Then when the activity is over, before they can get into anything, I will walk up to them or draw them aside again and say, now that you've seen what they've done, now what are you thinking about? And what it does is it creates an awareness of what's going on with them. And then at the end of it, if they're willing, I will dissect for them how, what they were thinking and how they were thinking and how they were feeling at both these times affected what they were going to do and ask and it's like it's oh, how do you, it, it's um, for many it was a slap in the face but the truth was only between them and me and they had the freedom to either accept it or not but it was Kind of a mirror that they're looking at and saying, God, look how messed up I am. And I'm not judging them. I have nothing to say about it. But if they're willing, I will get them to often share with the group what their struggle was. And I think for me, I began to understand that that was a beautiful place to begin to come to terms with the reality of what facilitation. Is where they are. Period. Now, here's the thing: the only place to go with the uh, from there for them is what they want to be, and that's their truth. I, I wouldn't dare step in and spoil it and say you should have done this. You could have. Oh, it's all you know. Should and could are words that are banned in my classroom. Should would trust must. Communication, collaboration, coordination, cooperation, all banned. (laughs) Cannot use them. Cannot use the word we either. Which means that every time somebody chooses to say something that, you know, that we, this, we, that, hiding behind the we. I said, no, is it your truth or is it somebody else's? Because I'm going to ask the rest of the classroom, is this what you feel? They say, you know what it sounds like, right? But I said, no, if it's your truth, feel free to say I. And I think these these little pieces have gone a long way in helping people come to that place where they begin to sense that they will never be enough. But in a very gentle, nice way, I know I'm not enough. Even today when I facilitate, there will be moments when I say, damn, that was a good question. But the rest of the time, I'm constantly looking at what I'm doing, how I'm feeling, what I'm sensing, how I'm responding. And that, how do you teach that? Because that is facilitation.
0: Is there something that you were taught way back when that you 100% disagree with now?
1: I was never taught. I didn't even know it existed. And I'm talking about, so you got to remember, this is 89 to 96, no internet. No books, no magazines. Chance opportunity when my dad had gone to England and he brought back and somebody told him this guy. So my dad had told somebody, this guy treks and, uh, you know, he likes adventure. So they gave him, I think they gifted me adventure education and outdoor leadership. Have you heard of Chris Lyons? Yeah. Great. So I got that gift. My whole world opened up. I said, wow, this is what I want to do. Oh, okay. If that's a defining moment, then that's the earlier question mark. Okay. So that here it is. And this is 96. So I've been doing a lot of stuff and I think brilliant stuff. I look back at uh, some of the stuff. I still have printed, uh, handwritten, what do you call them? Designs. It's just incredibly good. I don't know if I can produce that kind of work again from a research point of view of how of activities written down, my observations written down, my uh, inferences, and what was I going to do, next, all that stuff. So I was never taught. I, I didn't know it existed. Uh, till somebody said, hey, can you come and do this in England? And I said, oh, well, what is outdoor education? And they said, you mean you don't know? I said, no, I don't. What you're doing is outdoor education. We use the outdoors to educate young people. I said, wow, great. You, you mean you do that there? That's it? I was never taught.
0: This episode of Vertical Playpen is supported by Atomic Climbing Holds. If you've ever seen one of our climbing towers or climbing walls or traverse walls, you will have seen Atomic Climbing Holds on those structures. All orders ship in one to five business days, so very, very quick delivery on those holds. And they have removable climbing holds that are absolutely great for the challenge course industry. You can find their website at Atomic, that's A-T-O-M-I-K, climbingholds.com. Is there stuff that you've seen that when you go to conferences gets presented and you don't have to name names of people, but it's things you've seen that you say, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what you're prescribing is accurate.
1: Uh, honestly, not yet. And I think I can tell you why. Because I, strange as it may seem, when I encounter something that is different from what I know, I have never found it easy to say that won't work. And for the very simple reason that obviously that person has has an experience where they believe it works and uh, there must be some truth to it. And then for me, it's just a question of looking at what they are doing or saying and looking at how is there anything that I can get from there that can become part of my repertoire. And I'm kind of single-mindedly a sucker for everything. Yeah. I do. Okay. So I will say there is one approach that I have never understood. And that approach is hot seating. So there is a whole world out there that uses hot seating as a methodology. And they even, the facilitators themselves, I know, have even gone so far as to say that if you are not able to Tell your story in this group, then you're not enough, and something just churns for me. And this is normal people choosing to go on a self-development program, okay? And I have met more people shattered by the experience than have, than they have gained. The only place I've ever seen that, and it probably has reason. Is when I attended when I was in England in '96. There was this thing called Youth at Risk, an organization then in the U.S., and they used the tough love approach. Now that was a different story altogether because those kids were going to come there. So these kids are all abused in some way or the other, and they they are at the edge of alienation. And self-alienation, society alienating them, things are just not, is going right for them. Now, and all their behaviors are all now, they're just trying to stay safe in, you know, in an environment that it has been hugely threatening. And they're all between the ages of 12 to 18, so young. They were going to come for a week. Now, this is what I found really interesting. There were going to be 30 kids on the program. Do you know how many facilitators or adults there were going to be? Make a guess.
0: So 30 kids. Two? 120.
1: And we all went through a week-long program to prepare ourselves for when the kids came. I can't tell you how grateful I was. And the reason was simple. Every kid, every young person had to have an adult with them as long as they were awake. Right there, that's hard work. So we were given shifts of four hours. And sometimes the kids would run away. And you and uh, there, there was one cardinal rule, no matter what the reason, unless it's physical violence that they are up to, you will not touch them. So if somebody ran, found a way out of the campus, you'll have runners, you ran with them and a van followed. So you'd have this kid running away Mm -hmm. and you'd have these guys and then a van following. And they allowed that kid to run over run as long as he wanted to. And when he was tired, then they'd invite him into the van and we'd get back. Now, That's a hugely compassionate process. I understood why that needed to be, because that cathartic process that each uh, young person went through telling their story, oh man, it left so many adults Mm -hmm. just destroyed. Adults weeping, kids weeping, but for a normal person? I mean, what are we doing? Trying to take them through that process of hot seat? So that's the only piece that I'm very, very concerned about but it seems to work for them and that's
0: fine I, I don't know if it's, the, if, if it's the case in India, it certainly feels at the case here in, in in public school education that when we, pr- we bring into the school setting this notion of let people choose to speak or not, sometimes that's seen as very alien and it's almost like the teachers have to be retaught to be okay with people not saying anything at all and staying silent so I think that there's There's a societal pressure that our form of education isn't actually education. Even to an extent, I have experienced this myself, where I've worked with a group and I haven't spoken for an hour. And then I'm like, I should probably speak because they're paying me. (laughs) You know, like there's that mindset of like, how much voice should I present to the group uh, that would validate me needing to be there in the first place? Do you have any thoughts around like, how much speaking a facilitator should do?
1: If I encounter, and I often do, encounter a situation like that, the way I read it is, wow, that's great. I don't need to say anything because they know it all. So in recent times, I start by saying, look, there's nothing I can really teach you. You already know it, but you just don't know it. The only position or place I'm filling is that I'm going to give you a language for something that you've always known but didn't know. And if if people are talking, hour, two hours, three hours, hey, brilliant, they already know it. Every once in a while, I might just jump in and say, okay, so here's what you just said, and this is how it applies to the methodology. This is what we call it, simple. And there are times when I haven't spoken at all. And I think it's a good, for me, it's a good sign. Yeah, They're getting their money's worth <laughs> because yeah. God knows when they step out of that space where you, where they felt safe enough to speak so long, just imagine what you did. You know, you said, yeah, this is your time. Speak up and you're doing it. So that's great. I don't need to jump in and say anything because you know it all.
0: I am a, you a work in progress continuously as we all are. But I think of that, those things of being my own discomfort, trying to not get rid of the discomfort because I think it's important to to note it and be present, but to be able to let things go and not feel like I have to be the, oh, because Phil said this or this, you know, something happened that I'm able to let, get used to the silence, be okay with the silence. I can see myself still struggling with that when I'm working with groups and I'm there's either silence or there's a conversation going. I look at my watch and go, "Oh, did I leave that too long? <laughs> did I let them speak too long?"
1: Here's something you could try because I do it sometimes. When they've spoken, I will often at the end ask them, "Did you know you knew this?" And they say, "What do you mean?" They say, "Do you know how much wisdom you just displayed?" And they say, "What?" See now, let's. Let's just, and then we look at what was said, because people will say some brilliant things. And sometimes our job at that point is not to comment on it, but just feel it back to them in maybe a simpler, shorter version. And say, what you just said mm-hmm. is this. Did you know this? And you say, I didn't really know, I knew it. I just said it. I think it it works really well in getting people to feel safe about speaking up. I mean what could be of greater value than for them to recognize for themselves that they are wise?
0: And you're giving them immediate validation too, which is so powerful when anyone receives that. That's it. And it's
1: true. It's not as if I'm putting on a show. The truth is that they know it. They just didn't know it before before they Before you created. So that's our job is create that space. Let it be.
0: Myself and my colleague, Lisa Hunt, we've been playing with this notion and I've started to talk about it in when I'm training people. uh, And I refer to it as report out fatigue. And I'm going to give you a little bit of the explanation on what I mean by that. So I've seen the facilitators do this where, and I've done this in the past often where I'll have, I'll assign a question. I'll give them a reflection idea or a prompt, and I'll have them get into small groups and reflect. And they're, and they're having these small pod group conversations and I'm not, I might listen and hear stuff, but I'm really not there listening. And then we get them into a larger group And then we ask people to report out on what they discussed. Now, what I mean by report out fatigue is I have got fatigued about the process. I've tried to think of why I'm doing the report out. Who's it benefiting? Is it truly benefiting them? Or is it more about me wanting to know that they were talking about the thing I hope they were talking about? Is it a check-in on their conversation? What I've started to do is reduce the amount of reporting out that I do. But I'd love your your viewpoint on the the report out.
1: I think it's a it, it's a method. It's one of those methods, but it also can be used in a different way. And I think how you use it or when you use it can be defined by what it is that you want to glean from it. What is your purpose? What is it you want to know? And if you know that, then I've found an. An interesting way of doing it, I think it's interesting, is that, let's say there are four groups and they come back together. And one of the methods I will use is, I'll say, we're going to do a round robin. Uh, Give me what you think is your most important discovery through that conversation. And give me only one. So you have group one, give one. And if group two has it, then I suggest that, that they scratch it out give me what your next important one is or the most, if it, it may not have been the same one and I'll do a round robin. And one of the, and at the end of it, I will often ask them, so how many of them were common? And it's just amazing how, you know, one of my last mantras that I gave towards the end, the four mantras, mm-hmm. that we are a lot more alike than we think. We think we're, you know, a unique human being. Yeah, yeah, sure, we're unique, but you know what? Uh, not really. It's a way of saying we don't need to be afraid. That what I'm thinking, you're thinking too, is just you're thinking about it a little differently, and, and which means that we can have a conversation about it. And it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be uniquely different to be heard. That uh, There is much more similarity I think what I try to do through that is to get people uh, to get a sense of uh, commonality. It seems to help in building community. So the fear that people feel of is this stupid? Is this unique? Is it too different? Is it too crazy? Washes away a bit.
0: I think that what you're suggesting again is what we we said earlier that it's the right tool for the right team in the right moment, and there's plenty of opportunity that I see well framed. Report outs, exactly do that. Validate the the sharer with other people. I love the notion of raising hands. Who else feels the way that they've just described? Everyone look at all the hands raised just to create that notion of, of validation with the, with the statement.
1: There was a YouTube that I did that with and, and this was young boys and uh, I did this and, when, and then at some point in time, one of those kids stood up and he said, damn it. We're not really different. So why the hell are we fighting? What an insight.
0: Yeah. And that that point you just left, I'm assuming. You said, my job is done. (laughs) Do I need to continue? (laughs) If people are listening to this and they are new to the industry, they're emerging professionals. They're about to start on their their journey to find this as a career. What, What piece of advice would you give them?
1: For God's sake, don't be in a hurry. Every act of facilitation, think of this, here's our lifetime. It's a long line. And think of it as 70 years or 80 years or whatever you think you're going to be. Each act of facilitation and that moment of when you think you've got it or didn't get it or whatever is a blip in time. When you kind of that 30,000 foot view it's a blip. So for God's sake, don't be hard on yourself. We are primarily in the business of play. It's serious business and it's serious play, but it's play. So don't forget to kick yourself and say, oh damn, that was really stupid. Now let's see what I can do next time. Too many young people are worried about doing a bad job even before they've begun. And I'm saying, you are going to do, do a lousy job. But that's what you're designed to do. You are not born perfect. You're still learning. So get on with it. Don't waste your time thinking about you know how bad I was and, oh, I don't know if I'll be accepted again. I'll lose my job. Oh, come on. It is going to happen. The least you can do is go have fun with it. I'm going to connect it to these three pieces, which are conditioning. You're going to walk into that space of what you call facilitation or education or whatever you want to call it with baggage. You can't help it. You can't say, I don't want this. That's not a choice. And that that thing is constantly affected by how you want to be seen. You want to be seen as capable. You want to be seen as efficient. You want to be seen as intelligent. You want to be seen as affable. All that stuff. Who doesn't want that? But if we focus too much on that, we will forget some critical pieces. Now, if your conditioning Your state of conditioning in that moment of facilitation is one of nervousness, which comes from wanting to be seen as something. Then all that baggage of your past, of how you failed, when you failed, what happened, the consequences of it, all that is going to directly affect who you are in front of your audience. We use the word nervousness. Why? Because we are afraid. Nervousness comes from a fear, a fear of being accepted, not accepted, of being seen as whatever. That is going to affect your conduct. Now, is there a way around this? Can, can I prevent my conditioning from affecting my conduct? Probably not, because I'm, all through our lives, we are layering our conditioning. The choice that we do have is to just slow that whole thing down and say, yes, I want to be liked. Yes, I want to do a good job. Yes, I want to be seen as intelligent. But my history is not going to get me there. And the only thing that you can light a fire to in that moment is Throw everything away. And just, I don't know how to say this. It sounds philosophic. Just just be there. So if you are running an activity, watch them. Don't make meaning. Just watch them. And over the years, you asked me, how, how can facilitation be taught? I think one of the easiest way to step into facilitation is to use that moment effectively. It does two things. One, you see something that the group is doing. Before you give meaning, stop the group and say, hey, did you notice that? And they might say, what? It's not your job to tell them what it is that you saw. Did you notice anything? And I'll guarantee you, there will be at least one person who knows what you're talking about. And they will speak up. It may be the quietest kid in the room. And you will say, yeah, we were not supposed to lose connection and we did. Okay. No more questions. Step back. No, uh, what are you going to do about it. Nothing. Our job is to create awareness in our participants in the moment that it happens. And if that is true, I must, as a facilitator, create that moment for myself. And that's how it can be done. That you step in there, you watch, you call their attention, step back. No more conversation, even at the end saying you saw it, but you didn't do anything about it. It's over. That moment has been captured in your mind, in their minds. They may make whatever choices are real to them in that moment. That is what I am calling consciousness. Just be there. Don't think about what question you're going to ask. Don't look at your list. Your job is to watch. That's it. Watch how you want to rescue them. Watch how you want to make it easy, but making easy is not solving it for them. Making easy is creating an awareness about how things are going them in their mind that's what I'm calling consciousness and if we can do that oh it would be brilliant and this is true not just in the field of facilitation but in the most difficult conversations. to be able to sit there and just listen and a lot of books and everybody is talking about how communication is such an important thing right I don't know, I, don't know I'm, I may be tripping on this one, but this is what I'm beginning to sense that this that conversations and the value of conversations does not come from what you say. it comes from what you hear from what you receive, from how you receive it. who are you in that moment and if we can learn how to receive well whatever that means, I think we will make excellent facilitators, very naturally. There's this little story about the Buddha, that there's this young mother who's lost her child. She's in mourning and she's sitting by her child and the child's going to be put on the uh, fire soon. And the Buddha notices that and he just just goes and sits next to her. That's it. I couldn't help myself think, you know, you know how the mind chatters, right? What is he thinking? Does he want to say anything to her at all? And if he did say something, what would he say? What can you say in anyone's grief? That might be of value. There is nothing. Because the loss is so great that there is no energy to spend time with anything else for that grieving mother. And he just sits, and he sits as long as she sits. And when she's done with sitting there, and she gets up, and she walks away, and he walks away. So for me, the romance of the Buddha has been, with there, uh, been there in my head for many, many years. What was, what was going on in his head? And, or, or Should there be anything in his head? Is it possible that there was nothing? He was, he, was, he was there. And while he was there, I'm guessing he felt the grief. And he shared it with her in, without any words, by just his presence. But his calm was a different calm. And the hope that we can be there with our audiences in that calm. Wow. Romantic notion. Yeah. I don't know. I can't describe it anymore. No, but, but I think, <laughs> it, you know, funny.
0: if we go back to the very first thing we were talking about, which was if you have that sense of play, people will feel it, the pheromone, the kind of like that kind of stuff. And it were exactly the, the same notion, but just with a different way that we put ourselves in that situation and how just, important just that was. Just
1: presence. Just yeah. presence. Mm-hmm. That's it. There's nothing, the more words you use, the worse it gets.
0: I think that there's something about the consciousness that involves the word vulnerability also. There's, there's some vulnerability to not, have, to not knowing what's coming and being it's in the right. moment.
1: And it's so beautiful that moment.
0: So thank you, Vishwas. This, this has really been wonderful for me. As, I, as I've mentioned earlier, these podcasts are an excuse for me to talk yeah. to people and it's selfish of my end to do that. I think there, no, the, there was... a
1: lucky devil, man. Come
0: <laughs> yeah. There was something that you said also in your um, address that said, ask for what you want, feel no shame, be ready to give. So I thank you for that impetus because that was also what led me to then, in the moment, these are the names of people I wrote down who I wanted to reach out to after hearing you say that because I realized I need to do more of that just asking just asking and exactly. and I I I hope that there was something that you got out of this conversation also that it wasn't just a one-way street but, but I I certainly enjoyed it and I and I hope that we get to do this again or at least maybe in the future do this in person and, and connect on a different way there too I value the connection thank you so much Vishwas
1: Thanks for listening to Vertical
0: Playpen. And then, what about thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast? Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for giving us a papa
1: guy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: As a reminder, please, if you could continue to share the podcast with any educators that you think would find this beneficial, as well as letting me know what information you'd like me to share about and who potentially you'd like me to interview at podcast at high5adventure.org. Thank you so much. Stay safe and stay connected.